I'm going to talk to you this morning about fear. Um, two things, I guess, to start. First, you know, the number one command that is the most frequently stated command in Scripture is do not be afraid. Fear not. And I always think, you know, if the Lord had to repeat this so many times, perhaps it's because he knew fear had a way of interacting in our spirits in such a way that we kept getting off course. Uh, I'll be honest, in my own journey, the, the early days of my journey, I would not have assumed that I wrestled with fear at all. As a matter of fact, if you would ask me if I was a fearful person, I would have said no. Um, and, and there was some evidence of that. For example, when I planted South Shore, uh, I told the story, I think, to Steve the other day, maybe, but I was I, I started the church, and you know the church starts growing, and I planted a church in New England. We were, at the time now, the least church region in the U.S. Fewer people attend church in New England anyplace else. Out of those that do attend church, two-thirds are Catholics. And so, it's, you know, it's a really, really small percentage of evangelicals at this point. So we planted this church. The previous 14 churches that had been planted in the CMA in New England all failed. And we start off and people start coming to Christ, lives are changing, things are going great, we're seeing hundreds of people come to faith in Christ, people's coming in to plant churches from all different denominations would always get together with them. And every time they'd ask me, what was your strategy, what was your plan, what was your vision, how did you go about, blah, blah, blah. But every single church planner asked me this question, how did you overcome your fear of failure? And honestly, I just looked at them like blank. I'm like, I don't even know what you're talking about, you know? I went home finally, probably the sixth one who asked me this question. I went home to Jen and I said, can I ask you a question? She said, yeah. I said, were you ever afraid we would fail? And she burst out laughing. She goes, it never crossed your mind, did it? And I said, not really, no. I never really thought about that. And she's like, that's okay. We were plenty afraid for, our, for you. And uh, <laughs> glad you took care of that. Glad you carried that burden for me. So you know, I didn't really think that I had a lot of fear. But a couple years into our journey at South Shore, um, my wife didn't like me anymore. And when she got to a place where she really didn't like me, I found fear in my soul at a level that I never knew existed. Um, honestly, I wasn't sure she would, she and I would make it. And you know what? If you're in ministry and your wife takes off on you, that really puts a wrinkle in ministry. That's a bit of a problem. And um, I had fear spinning in my soul at a level I didn't even know existed. By the way, I mean, in the beginning, I don't even think I would have called it fear because I didn't feel afraid. I don't generally feel fear. What I felt was a lot of different things. My mind was racing. I could feel tension, anxiety in my chest. I felt power. I wanted to win. But I didn't actually feel afraid. And so, you know, I've had to recognize over the years kind of what fear looks like and smells like in me. Because it doesn't look and smell a lot like maybe what some other people experience. It's different. And I had to figure that out. I'll give you one more story about fear. Maybe two. And then I'll, I'll dive in and talk about overcoming fear. Um, I had another fear strike me along the journey that uh, surprised me, I guess, again. Um, it was, uh, I was, I was starting in ministry and we'd started uh, working with other pastors in our region. So I went around knocking on doors, literally knocked on every single church door in our city of 100,000 people in Brockton, Mass, where we were. And I was trying to collect the pastors, get the pastors together, pray together. There was no pastors gathering whatsoever. So anyways, as a result, I started making friends with all these different groups, like outside our, you know, CMA boundary line and evangelical boundary lines. 
to one of the groups were a bunch of wild-eyed Pentecostals who um, were the four-square people down the street, okay? And so one day they call me up, and I'm connecting with them, and we're gathering together, praying, so on. So one day they call me up, and they go, hey, uh, we want to know if you'd come over to our church so that our prophetic intercessors can pray over you. I'm like, know about that. They sound like kind of scary people to me. And, you know, no offense to those of you in the room who are prophetic intercessors, but you're a little weird, really. You are. You're strange. Really strange. And so, honestly, I was, I was like going into this meeting, and I'm finding myself like really like stirred up inside. And I got along with the Lord, and I'm like, okay, what is that? And you know, honestly, what it was, when I finally wrestled it down, was afraid they'd see something in me and call something out of me that would in some way embarrass me. And then I thought about 1 Corinthians 14 and prophecy. Purpose of prophecy is to strengthen, comfort, and encourage. It's not to shame or embarrass. And literally, I said to the Lord, I said, I have a stupid fear of the Holy Spirit inside me. I have a word for you, ready? Jesus isn't afraid of the Holy Spirit. And when you have a fear of the Holy Spirit, that is a tool of the enemy to keep you from the fullness of God. That's all it is. Fear is a tool of the enemy to keep you from the fullness of God. So I called up my four square friends and I said, I'd love to meet with your prophetic intercessors. I'll tell you a little story that came out of that. They prophesied over me about writing books that would reach tens of thousands of people. They're the only group that ever prophesied that over me. I'm now living that. I was 25 years old when they prophesied that over me. I wrote it down. The Lord had given me a word when I was 24 years old, alone with Him, that I would write books. They nailed it. It was an incredible meeting. And yet my fear almost kept me from going. I wonder how many times we miss out on the greatest things of God because of fear. This is why we have to address our fear. Let me give you one other story. Again, you know, most of my journey, I, I have not had to wrestle as deeply with fear as, um, as these stories. Most of my journey just kind of sail along, and then once in a while I get these roadblocks with fear. And this was the last season that I had to wrestle with fear. I was transitioning out of my church in in Boston area. And I was in the midst of this transition. I knew the Lord had released me and <clears throat> I didn't know what was gonna happen next. And I sat with the board and you know, I said to him, you know, it's really time for us to put a date on the map. I've been looking for a successor, couldn't find a successor. And I said, it's time for us to put a date on the map and for me to you know, call it quits. I said, you know, my travel that the Lord has called me to, which they knew the Lord had called me to as well, has really hurt the church, and it's time for me to go. And so we're putting a date on the map, and I have no plans for the future. I have three kids in college, you know. I, I, I live in an expensive area, and I'm telling you, man, fear of finances hit me for the first time in my life. When we planted South Shore, we, we, in one month, had our first kid, bought our first house, planted our first church, and I was never afraid of finance. It never occurred to me. But at 52 last year, I had a fear of finances that was intense. Right in the midst of this, my buddy Ron calls me, actually texted me, and offered me a job at the seminary. But the move from 
Boston to the seminary was going to cost me about half my paycheck. And also moving into an area that was about $20,000 a year more expensive. That didn't help my fear of finance, just in case you were wondering, okay? I mean, oh my gosh. I wrestled so intensely with this decision for a while. The only reason I deeply wrestled was because of fear. And I finally wrestled it down and came to this place where I went, I got to trust God to take care of me. And I surrendered. And we haven't skipped a beat. But I could have missed out once again on my destiny if I hadn't dealt with my fear. And so that's why I want to talk about fear. And, uh, I want to talk about overcoming fears today. And again, I already said to you, the single most common command in Scripture is do not be afraid or fear not. And that's, I think, because in our fear, we often sin. And just think with me about people, stories, and Scripture, and how it's impacted people's destinies with fear. So think about the Israelites as they're coming into the promised land, right? The Lord gives them a promise that they are going to take the land. And the people uh, sent 10, 12 spies into the land, right? Two of the spies come back and go, yeah, man, there's, there's unbelievable fruit in the land. Let's go for it. And, and the other 10 come back and go, yeah, there's fruit, but there's giants in that bare land. I ain't going in that land. And they scare the people. And the people back out. And you know what? An entire generation loses out on their prophetic destiny because of their fear. Listen, fear often keeps a church or a people from hitting their mark for God. If we don't wrestle it down. But it's not just them. Think about Saul. He's the first king of Israel. He establishes a kingdom. He's an interesting guy, right? Well, you get to this place in Saul's journey where he's told by Samuel to wait. And Samuel's going to come and make a sacrifice. He's sitting up on top of the hill. The Philistines are gathering below in the valley. They have chariots. He's got a bunch of farm boys. they got pitchforks. They're hanging up on the hilltop. They see these chariots rolling in with modern weaponry. And the people are scared to death. As a matter of fact, the text says they're leaving in troves. And listen, Saul did what any responsible leader would be told to do today. Take action. But when you act out of fear and not in waiting on the Lord to the Lord's response, that's never a wise action. He makes the sacrifice, tries to rally the troops. Of course, as soon as he makes the sacrifice, lo and behold, Samuel shows up. Listen, it cost him his kingdom. Fear cost him his prophetic destiny. This is the power of fear in Scripture. No wonder he keeps saying, do not be afraid, fear not, the number one command. Think with me about Isaiah chapter 7. There's a story there about Rezin of Aram and Pekah of Israel attacking Ahaz of Judah. And of course the people of Judah and the king are afraid. So the Lord speaks, be careful, keep calm, don't be afraid. And when your circumstances seem greater than God, we often have to choose to trust him. The ultimate proof we can trust him is in this passage. He sent his son, Emmanuel. God is with us. And of course, in this day and age, you know, I think it had a double meaning. I think it has to do with the son that was born just to prove that God was with them. In our day and age, of course, it has to do with the Messiah that was born for us, God being with us. I think the number one question on the heart of people for God is, do you love me? Now, I think the number one question from God to people is, I've proven my love. I gave you my son. Now, will you trust me? Whatever I ask, wherever I lead, will you follow? 
Because, he said his son, we can trust him. The problem is we can either act on fear or we can act on faith, but we can't act on both. Hear me for a second. You can act on faith while you feel afraid, but you can't act on both. And fear is such a dominant emotion that we often act on it. It's not a secondary emotion. It's primary. Mm -hmm. And that's why it drives us to action so often. Behind our sin often lurks unnoticed fear. But God notices and he calls people to trust. He says, fear not, for I'm with you. I love this prayer by David. I think David is a master soul tacticianer. Just has a great understanding of things of the soul. And he writes in this psalm, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way and leave me in the way everlasting. Before he even asked God to deal with his sin, he asked God to deal with his fear, his anxiety. Why? Because he knew his fear could lead him to sin. How did he know it? Well, I mean, he saw Saul. Cost him the kingdom. But it wasn't just Saul. This guy wrestled down his fear. He was a warrior. But please understand, he's often going to have fear, adrenaline, kicking on a battlefield. He knew what he could do. Now here's the good news. God has promised us peace. John chapter 14, verse 27, Jesus promises a peace that passes understanding. It's because it's not a peace that the world gives, as he says. It's peace that comes from heaven. Now here, work with me for a second. Think about the throne room of heaven right now, and Jesus sitting on the throne. Can I tell you something about Jesus? Jesus is never nervous. He has not had a day in eternity where he's ever had a nervous moment. And here's the reality. When I am in perfect alignment with Jesus, his peace from heaven is imparted to my heart. When anxiety strikes my heart, fear strikes my heart, it's because I'm out of alignment with Jesus. And as long as I can get back into alignment, I can have his peace at the center of my being. So when I lose peace, I always go, what, what happened? How did I get out of alignment? I need to go after that because something's not right inside my soul when that takes place. And I want to chase that thing down because I realize, like David, if I don't, it could lead me on a path that is really a path I don't want to take. In our fear, we're often tempted to manipulate and control others. And perhaps this never shows up as much, quite as much as in parenting. <clears throat> I noticed the way I was praying for my children at one point. Um, my prayers for my kids sounded a lot like this. God, don't let anything bad happen to them. Protect them. Keep them from the wrong relationships. Don't let them hang around with the wrong people. And all my prayers were those kinds of prayers for my children. And uh, one day I, I'm praying like that, and I hear the Holy Spirit interrupt my prayer time, which I thought was kind of rude. But he says to me, do you want your children to grow up to be pansies? But, well, no. I said, I want them to grow up, of course, to be mighty warriors. He goes, if I answered all your prayers for your children, they'd be pansies. He said, think about your own life. He said, how did you become a warrior? By having a life of ease or in times of difficulty? I said, yeah, definitely difficulty. He goes, quit praying out the things I need to put in to make them the people you and I both want them to be. But what I realized was all my prayers were fear-based prayers. Here, hear me for a second. When you pray in fear, you reinforce fear at the center of your being. When you pray in faith, you pray with a boldness and confidence, and you release things from heaven. I started praying for my kids differently. And my prayers started sounding a lot more like Romans 8 kind of prayers. God redeem whatever comes into their life to make them more like Jesus. It was funny. Then when bad things happened to my kids, my reactions were different. 
When you're praying in fear, you will be induced by fear and seduced by fear to act in fear when you start to have your kids do things that are off charts. But when you pray in faith, all of a sudden, then what happens is you respond in faith when your kids get off kilter because you believe that God could redeem this. It changes. And that was true for me. And I had to fix the way I was praying for my kids. Ultimately, to conquer fear, we're going to have to surrender our fears. And our need to control outcomes, God, our children, people. And we're just going to have to trust Him. And honestly, believing God is redemptive. We know He is. And that's critically important to trusting Him. Our fears are often connected to things that have happened to us in the past. Hurts, wounds. <clears throat> when a situation in our past reminds us of something in our, in our you know, present, then we're going to be fearful. We're going to be tempted to, to act on it. Uh, so, for example... In my own journey, um, probably my deepest fear is a fear of not being loved, which maybe later on I'll get to kind of the story and how I figured that out. But I had this fear of not being loved, so that showed up in my life on a regular basis. For example, this is one of the ways it showed up. Again, I didn't think about it as fear, but it was. So people come up to me on Sunday morning, they say, I need to talk to you. And, you know, it's after a talk or whatever, and, and, and I'd say to them, okay. I said, well, you know, when are you available this week? They'd say, oh, well, how about Wednesday morning? I'd say, okay, I'll meet you Wednesday morning. And I'd leave that conversation with Steve. And I'd say, Steve said to me, I need to talk to you. And I'd leave that conversation with Steve, and I'd act very calm in the conversation, but then this is what would spin through my head. I'd think, what did I say to Steve? I remember saying, Steve, bother, is that one thing? But I mean, I can't believe he took offense. I didn't mean anything by it. He only took offense to that because he's thin-skinned. I cannot believe he's upset about that. And then I'd start having a conversation in my head with Steve, right? Steve would tell me why he was upset. I'd tell him why I was wrong. And he would tell me why he felt this way. And I would help him understand that he was wrong. And finally, by the end of the conversation, he'd be on his knees and repent. So we would have the right outcome, right? This is what happened in my head every time. Then I'd meet with Steve Wednesday morning and go, I'm really struggling. Can you pray for me? I think you just wasted three days of my life. <laughs> now, he didn't waste any days of my life. You know what happens? When fear is undealt with in your soul, you will always use unnecessary amounts of emotional energy to process it. As a matter of fact, that which runs through my head unfiltered reveals what is in my heart undealt with. And when I'm having those imaginary conversations with him in my head, it's because of what my heart has never addressed. And so I sat down, and when I started seeing this, I actually made a decision in my life I would never have an imaginary conversation with someone again. Because I realized I was reinforcing fear at the center of my being every time I did it. And I thought, I can't keep doing this. i got to overcome this stuff. We will seek to defend ourselves from our fears. Often what we do is put up shields. There's a real difference between a shield and a boundary, okay? A shield is often a measure of self-protection. We use power, control, anger, withdrawal, silence. These are self-protective things. The problem with the shield is they're indiscriminate. Not only do they block out the person who I perceive is trying to hurt me, they also block out God from healing. And I have to lay down my shields, my self-protective measures, in order to let God in. A boundary is actually a little different. A boundary is something that is uh, really a God-protected measure, and it's calling a higher level of health to the relationship. So, for example, somebody comes in my office and they're yelling at me, and I yell back at them, or I withdraw, that's a shield. But if they're yelling and screaming at me, and I look at them and say to them, listen, you know what, I'm sure what you're saying to me is important, but the way you're saying it is so unhealthy. I'm not going to dialogue that way. I treat you with dignity and respect. 
And I'm asking the same from you. What I'm doing is I'm actually putting a boundary up that raises, elevates the level of health in conversation. A boundary calls people to the highest level of maturity in the room. A shield lowers yourself to the level of dysfunction in the room. And so I want to lay down my shields that are there to protect me. And a lot of times we don't even recognize these things. So I had to recognize, for me, I had power, defensiveness, silence. It depended on how I was feeling. Um, with Jen, if I felt hurt, then I would withdraw. If she disagreed with me, I would be more likely to be defensive. And I just started realizing this was fear-based stuff, fear of not being loved. And I had to start to put down shields down in my life. The good news is you don't have to be a victim to your fears. You can overcome them. We do have a choice. It really helps if you will know your root fears so you won't be blindsided by them. So, you know, when I started unpacking some of the stuff in the suitcase, my soul, dealing with marriage issues, one of the things that I did was <clears throat> I realized that I needed help to process some of this stuff. And so it takes two healthy people to have a healthy relationship. And on a scale of one to ten, you know, if you're a three, the healthiest relationship you'll ever have is a three. And you want to move from three to a five. There's one and only one way to get there. You've got to change. Do what you always done. Get what you always got. So, you know, I realized in the beginning when Jen didn't like me anymore, my prayers all went towards her. God fix her, God heal her, God make her better, change her. And after a while, I realized God wasn't answering any of those prayers. And the only person in the room I was really responsible for was me. And so I just started to, to focus on me. So one day I went into my office and I prayed this prayer. Lord, I'm stuck. And if I don't get healthier, I'm going to lose my wife. You need to help me. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to change. Unfortunately, I grew up in the church. They never taught you how to really change. They just taught you behavior management. And so I need real change. I need you to help me. And I heard the Lord say to me, you bought a book over there by a woman named Leanne Payne. Pick it up. So I literally went over the shelf, didn't remember the book. Went over, looked on the shelf. Sure enough, it's a book by Leanne Payne. I read her first book. I ended up reading all six of her books. And then I said, I'm going to go to a Leanne Payne conference. So, you know, while I was also having conflict with Jenna, I was also having conflict with my staff. Well, you know, if you're unhealthy, you're going to have unhealthy relationships. It's just the way it is, right? So... And wherever you are, there you go. And so I called up my staff and said to them, listen, I'm reading this Leanne Payne book. We're, we're struggling together, and I'd like you to read this with me. They read it with me. And then I said, let's go on a Leanne Payne conference together. They all groaned. They're like, oh, no. You know, I'm like, come on. They're like, all right. So we go to Leanne Payne. Basically, Leanne Payne, you know, I do soul care conferences. And, you know, Leanne Payne is like from 9 in the morning till 9 at night, just tearing apart your dysfunction. If you thought you were healthy when you went into Leanne Payne conference, by the time you left, you knew you were utterly and hopelessly dysfunctional and you desperately needed Jesus. And actually, it's a good place to be because it makes you humble. And so I went into Leanne Payne conference and, you know, I walked through the door. He starts, one of the associates started teaching on separation anxiety. And, you know, honestly, if this had happened six months earlier, I would have thought this is a bunch of psycho battle. This is just crap. That's a Hebrew word, but it's there. <laughs> and so I'm like, come on, this is nonsense. But the problem was, one, I was desperate. And that desperation is the platform of breakthrough because it makes you humble enough to finally listen. And that was one. The second problem was this. From the moment he started speaking, I felt such anxiety. I felt like I was having a heart attack. I've never had that experience before. 
And so I, would, I didn't even take notes on a talk. I have no idea what he said anymore because I didn't even take notes. I just waited for his talk to finish. And as soon as he finished, I ran down front. I'm knocking over old ladies to get down front for him to pray for me, right? I get down front. I'm like, I need your prayer, man. You got to pray for me. He looks at me and he goes, well, it's Monday. Friday, we're going to have a prayer time. You'll be fine, he goes. If you don't get better by Friday, come and see me wanted to hit him. I'm like, are you kidding me, buddy? I'm dying here, you know? So I left the auditorium, and you know, this stuff is so weird, but I literally walked out of the auditorium. As soon as I walked out of the auditorium, the anxiety stopped. I didn't think anything of it until the next morning when I walked back in the auditorium. As soon as I walked back in the auditorium, the anxiety started. That morning, it struck me, and I'm like, oh, wait a second, that was weird. So I stood in the door frame, and I stepped in, and it was anxiety. I backed out, and it disappeared. I step back in and the anxiety is there. I step back out and it disappeared. I'm like, okay, God, you got my attention. And I said to him, listen, I came here because you know I'm struggling in my marriage and I'm broken. So whatever you need to teach me, I'm wide open. We go through, Wednesday comes along and Lan Payne's teaching on fear. Again, I'm not at this point in my life aware of fear at all. I just don't even pay any attention to this stuff. And so she's teaching on fear. I'm just taking notes because I know fearful people in my life. And I think, well, this can be useful as a pastor, you know, pastoral kind of a technique to help people overcome their fears. This would be a useful thing. And so she's finishing the talk on fear. And then she's going to lead us through an exercise. And honestly, <clears throat> Leanne Payne's a little bit uh, artsy, not, not so much. Uh, she's a little bit charismatic, actually quite a bit charismatic. At that point in my life, that was not part of my circle. Uh, and she's liturgical, and that wasn't part of my circle. So she's just out of every box that I'm in, you know. And she starts in and she goes, um, now, she goes, we're going to lead you through the garden of your fears. And I'm sitting there going, oh my. Gosh, this lady is a fruit. What did I say? This is stupid. My self-talk is really going. And she's like, picture a garden. And I'm like, okay. Because I got anxiety, you know. And I'm, I'm going, okay, God. You know what? I'm going to do this. I think it's stupid, but I'm doing it. I'm going to picture a garden. First thing that comes to my mind, I'm going with it. And I got a garden that comes to my mind. It's like a rock garden, right? I got rocks in my garden. I have flowers in my garden. I have a big tree right in the center of my garden. It's beautiful, right? I know this is my garden. That's what I see. That's what I'm going with. That's it. I'm done. She goes, now walk through your garden. Picture the weeds in your garden. Those are your fears. She said, pull those out. And I'm walking through my garden. I'm telling you, there's not a freaking weed in my garden. I've got, I've got flowers in my garden. I've got rocks in my garden. I've got a big tree in the center of my garden. I'm going, this lady is nuts. This is stupid. I can't believe I came to this thing. And all of a sudden she goes, some of you don't have any weeds in your garden. You just have a big tree right in the center of your garden. She goes, that's because you don't have any little fears. You only have a big root fear. She goes, I'm like, come on, how does she know this stuff, right? And she goes, it's such a big fear, you can't move it, you need Jesus. As soon as she says it, Jesus walks into my picture, grabs hold of the tree, and pulls it out by the roots. And the moment he did it, I knew it was the fear of not being loved. My whole life made sense. I was thinking about all those conversations with people like Steve, and all the imaginary conversations in my head. I was thinking about why... When my wife didn't like me anymore, I mean, it tossed my world upside down. There's this tremendous fear of not being loved. 
I worked for a guy one time that every time I went into his office, you know, he would he would always bring up something negative every time. I hated staff meeting. I dreaded it for days in advance, but it was the fear of not being loved. Why was I so defensive when people were critical? It was the fear of not being loved. And this thing just made huge sense to me. Well, at this stage, I'm a little more open to what's happening in Liam Payne. And so, you know, all week long, you know, I walk out of the auditorium, fear, anxiety stuff stops. I walk in, it's back. Friday comes. I'm desperate, man. I'm so desperate. I looked at my staff over with me. I said, I, 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 I got to sit by my son there. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah. we're all just like shaking to our core. I'm like, I just did, whatever happens here, we never talk about it ever again. <laughs> Not written in a book. I tell it all over the world, you know. Whatever. I'm never going to talk about this again. They're like, oh, us too, you know. So I got to sit in a corner by myself someplace, and, and they're leading you through a guided prayer time, right? When they lead you through this guided prayer time, they're kind of walking through two things. One, they're just walking through stuff that happens to lots of people. And then two, they're calling out specific words of knowledge, prophetic words that they're picking up from the Holy Spirit that are very specific. And so, you know, they're doing stuff like, you know, some of you were born and your, your, your mother died during childhood. Some of you, your father abandoned you when you were little. Some of you were molested in preschool. And it just walked through specific events. That happened to lots of people. But then somebody will stand up to the mic, one of the intercessors, and they'll call out a very specific thing that they got a word on. So, you know, nothing is landing on me. They're going through this prayer time. I'm desperate, man. I've been riddled with anxiety like a fire hose inside of me all week long. And finally, this, this guy steps up to the microphone and he goes, some of you were born a boy and your mother wanted a girl. I knew that. It was the second born. It was 14 months between my brother and I. He was a boy that wanted a girl. I mean, who cares? They didn't dress me in dresses or anything. It was no big deal. Okay? <laughs> Except when he said it, I had a picture of my mother holding me in the hospital for the first time and she was disappointed that I was a boy. And I'm telling you, when he said it, I felt literally like somebody pulled a thorn out of my heart. A physical pain and I physically gasped. I went, oh! And I was like, oh, that was weird. <laughs> wow. Of course, other people were groaning and screaming all over the room, so it was fine. right in. These guys have both been the Leon's parents, and they know my kid. Uh, so we're sitting there. When he's done, he goes, some of you, you know, you have a mother wound, you need to go to a, a mother figure and get a hug, and others of you have a father wound, you need to go to a father figure and get a hug. And so there's all these intercessors along the wall, the auditorium. And I ran to this lady, I don't know her name. I never, I never spoke a word to her. When I get to heaven, she's in my short list. I literally collapsed in her arms. Just collapsed. I never said anything, I just heaved. I broke into sobs. I mean, the heaving, gasping sobs. I mean, it's not all over this poor lady's jacket. I still feel bad about it. The entire time I wept, I mean sobbed. She kept saying one phrase. This was the phrase. Precious child, you are loved by God. Precious child, you are loved by God. Precious child, you are loved by God. She had no way of knowing it was a childhood wound or a love deprivation, but you see the father knows. The entire time this happened, man, I could feel like 
stuff draining out of me, fear, anxiety, anger, defense, all kinds of stuff. And I can feel love just get poured in peace. I went home and told my wife this story. God bless her. She's a skeptic. She looks at me and she goes, I don't believe it. I said, I don't blame you. I wouldn't believe it either if it hadn't happened to me. What she didn't realize was the fact that I wasn't defensive was the first sign that something had happened. See, when you're self-protective, you have to have shields like defensiveness to protect yourself from your fears and your wounds. When your wounds get healed, you can lay down your shields. And I'd already started laying down some of my shields. Three months later, though, she came to me and she said to me, Hey, you know that land pain story? I said, Yeah. She goes, I believe it. I said, Why? She goes, You're different. You've changed. I said, How? She goes, You're less offensive. You're less angry. You're less anxious. You're more loving. You're more peaceful. You're different. I said, There's a lot of things in the spiritual world that I don't understand, but that doesn't mean they're not true. It just means I don't have the knowledge that God has. As I told you that, to say this, you know, there, there's a lot of us who have roots to our fears. And if you don't get to the roots, you're just managing the behaviors. you got to go for the roots. I know I'm in the middle of the talk, but can we just take a moment? God does often bring us face to face with our fears. Uh, he presents opportunities to overcome them. In my case, you know, I don't think I've ever addressed the fear of not being loved unless Jen didn't love me. Nothing else would have driven me to that. It was funny, in the midst of it, you know, one day the Lord spoke to me and he said to me, I want you to give me thanks for your marriage crisis. I said, Lord, I can give you thanks for a lot of things, but this is not on my list. He said, one day you will give me more thanks for this than anything that has ever come to you. I want you to do it now in faith. And I did. I started giving God thanks for the marriage crisis. Honestly, it has changed my life more than anything else. Jen and I have been married 28 years. This is our 28th year. Uh, the last five years have been the best years of our marriage. The last year has been the very best year of all. We can't say that unless I went through this. There are things I learned that I have taught around the world that I never would have learned if I hadn't been through it. The whole Soul Care book only arose out of that crisis. And the only reason I learned the lessons I learned was because of that. And I am more grateful for that event at this point in my life and its shaping power than any other event. So often, it's funny to me, but God will bring events into our lives that we pray out. And he's allowed in to make us to be the very people we're praying we could become. And I've tried to stop doing that and praying out things that God wants to use. These opportunities lead us to places of surrender and healing if we embrace them and allow God to redeem them. And they will deepen our faith only if we choose to act on faith and not on fear. So one of the things that really is important in this journey is to identify our fears, actually name them. And remember, they are often tied to our identity and to wounding issues in our life. And so try to identify the roots of the fears with the help of the Spirit. And healing those wounds, root wounds, can really help us face fears with new courage and change life patterns for us. When our fears get tapped into, one of the things that you have to realize is how they manifest themselves. For me, again, when I felt afraid, I didn't actually feel fear. I felt power. I felt my mind started racing. I was looking for solutions. It was like supercharged. 
Which, by the way, and that's because when you get afraid, you get a juice of adrenaline in your body, and so everything gets hyper, you know, charged. And so for me, I started realizing the phrases that were running through my head when I was acting on fear. For example, this is one of the phrases. When people would come against me and be critical of me, I would find myself never saying it out loud, of course, because that was not acceptable. But inside my head, I would say, I don't really care what people think. It was just a shield. It was to protect me because I had a fear of not being loved. You know what I did? I changed the way I talked to myself. And what I literally started saying was this. I care very deeply what people think. I want people to like me. But if they don't like me, I'm going to be okay because Jesus really does like me and that's going to be enough for me. You know, literally, I would say that to people sometimes. It would actually take away a lot of their anger or defensiveness. I would say to them, I, I like you very much. I want you to like me. But if you don't like me, it's going to be okay. Jesus likes me. So it's okay if you disagree with me. And we can talk about it in civil and honorable ways. Can we do that? And uh, it took a lot of juice out of the conversations, too. Uh, once you identify how these fears manifest themselves, these actually become your indicator clues to go to God. Me, one of the manifestations was defensiveness, power. Racing mind, anxiety, tightness of the chest. All those things were indicators of fear. Well, as soon as I felt all that stuff, I went, well, I had slipped off the platform of God's love. Because perfect love drives out fear. When I have fear, I am out of alignment with God. If I were steady in his love and in right alignment with him, I would have the perfect peace that Jesus passed, promised that passes all understanding. When that's gone, it's because I've stepped out of alignment. And when I've stepped out of alignment, the signs became my clues to go, oh, I'm out of alignment, I need to get back into alignment. I literally stopped what I was doing and moved back in. In the beginning, when I was trying to kind of master this process, I would be in a staff meeting, and somebody would disagree with me in a staff meeting, and I would feel this surge of power, my mind is racing. I want to win, man. It's all about winning. It ain't about being right or wrong, it's about winning at this point. When, you know, I got a fear of not being loved. And I'd literally take a break because I'm trying not to act on this stuff. Because the more you act on it, the more you reinforce the lie. And so I'm like, I'm not going to act on it. So I'd say, okay, hey, I'm going to take a quick bathroom break. And I'd go off to the bathroom and literally center. And I'd be like, you know what? The issue of my value is settled at the cross. Jesus deeply likes me. I want to be loyal. It's okay if they don't like me. Jesus likes me. That's enough for him. Change my self-talk. And then I'd come back in, center, and be non-defensive. One day I'm doing this practice, right? And one day I get this one staff member that's really pushy and annoying. I mean, none of you have that around here, but in some staffs you have those kinds of people. And so I go out to the bathroom and he follows me to the bathroom, continuing to argue with me. And I finally looked at him and I said, Matt, I love you. If you don't stop, I'm going to beat you. Please stop. I'm trying to overcome my fears. You are killing me. Go away. Use another bathroom. I'm going to center. And then when I come back, you'll be less annoying. Please? I said, okay. And then I went, and I'm just like, I'm just centering. And then I went back and I said, okay, Matt, now I'm ready to deal with you again in a nice way. Can we talk now civilly? Okay? I needed to center. Some of you need this practice. I can tell with some of your staff. How do you overcome fears? Let me give you a couple of thoughts from this passage in Philippians chapter 4. Paul, rejoice in the Lord always. You know, if he hadn't stuck in the word always, that would have been better. <coughs> Rejoice in the Lord mostly. I could have handled that. It's the always. So just in case you missed it, he says, I'll say it again, rejoice. That's because he threw in always, right? Let your gentleness be evident to all. This is meekness. It has to do with submission. The Lord is dear. Don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, 
by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding. This is the promised peace of Jesus. Will guard your hearts and your minds. I love that. Your hearts, there will be a stillness at your center. And your minds, your mind will not race. When I lose the peace of Christ, I have fallen out of alignment. And I have to go after that. So let me just give you a couple of real practical things. First, you're allowed like to start with rejoicing. Choose worship. It actually, of course, allows us to access God's presence. Psalm 100, we enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. We can literally enter the presence of God through worship. So we got to start by choosing worship. It gets our eyes off of ourselves and onto God, off of our circumstances. And really, there are only two times to worship, when you feel like it and when you don't. But the time when you really need to do it is when you don't feel like it. When I'm afraid, I never feel like choosing worship. You know what happens? When I'm afraid, my mind's racing. I become an activist. When I'm afraid, I want to move into rapid-fire activity that resolves my problems. And what I have to do is back down and go, no, I'm going to choose it for worship, still my heart and soul, and then I'm going to act with wisdom. My problem is in fear, I seldom act with wisdom. And so I have to deal with this. So first thing, i got to center on God. That's why we rejoice. Second, then we have to choose a gentle response. Uh, the response here is to slow down. Because often when we're fearful, we're going to act in controlling, angry, defensive, self-protective ways. So this is time to slow down and be careful. This is about submission, gentleness. This is not my natural posture in fear. You know, they talk about the fight-flight response, you know. I'm a fighter, not a flayer. I don't run. I'm like, come on, let's get a drop. You know, and that's my personality. It's not pretty. It just is reality. And I know that about myself. And so for me personally... Um, I, I've learned a lot from David, because like I said before, he really is a master soul tactician. Psalm 46, verse 10, says what? Be still and know that I am God. What's verse 1? Anybody? You should read the Bible. It's a good book. It really is. Verse 1, he is an ever-present help in times of trouble. Please catch David's thinking. He's a warrior. His reflex reaction to a tough battle situation is to fight, never run. He is no run. Okay. In the midst of this very difficult situation, while his reflex reaction is to fight, he does the exact opposite of all the adrenaline rush that he's receiving. He's going to back off and be still. Only when he centers is he's going to act wisely. That is a brilliant soul move. And so that's one of the things that I always have to do. When I'm afraid, everything gets sped up and I'm far more likely to make bad choices. And so I have to choose in for a gentle response, which means for me, I have to practice stillness, slow it down, and center in before I act. Third, remember the Lord's presence is near and fix your eyes on Jesus. The Lord is near, therefore, you know, you don't have to be anxious. So cultivate a sense of his presence, soak in it. We can either fix our eyes on Jesus or we can fix our eyes on our problems. We can't fix our eyes on both at the same time. We have to choose. The problem with problems is this, especially fear-based problems, is we suffer from what I would call mind drift. And here's how mind drift works. My mind naturally races towards my most pressing problem.
problem because it generates fear and fear is a dominant emotion. So you drive out of here today and you know, you've been focused on this stuff all day long. You turn on your radio, you're leaving. And as you're driving away, if you just let your mind go into cruise control, whatever is your greatest pressing problem, that's what will come up in your mind. If you're struggling with marriage stuff, that's what will start. It'll start grinding in the back of you. You won't do it on purpose. It'll just pop up on you. If you're wrestling with stuff with your kids, it'll pop up on you. You're wrestling with financial issues, it'll pop up on you. Work-based issues, it'll pop up on you. Because your mind naturally drifts towards your greatest pressing problem. And what Paul is calling us to is to literally fix our attention, our eyes, on Jesus. Again, Jesus isn't nervous. And peace is a byproduct of a fixation on Jesus. You know, he's sitting up at his throne today and he's not wringing his hands over my life going, oh my gosh, what am I going to do with Rob's finances? Is he going to have enough to live on? He hasn't had a nervous moment in the last couple of millennials. He's not planning on it the next evening, okay? Fourth, overcoming our fears involves redemptive suffering. And when you intentionally go to Jesus and let him comfort you, it actually helps heal some of the woundedness and so underneath the fears and brings comfort and helps us to avoid things like running to a comfort sin pattern in our fear. Which is a common thing. You know, when you have fear, you're stirred up inside. And so you want something that produces some comfort. So we're going to be tempted with things like fantasy, lust, eating. You know, it could be alcohol, drugs, all kinds of stuff. So instead, we need to draw to Jesus. This is part of going near, drawing near. The Lord's presence is near. We go to him. We still feel the pain or the angst. But somehow or another, in the midst of his presence, he starts to drain some. I was driving down the road one day on my bike. And it was in a season when I was getting attacked a lot of church. I had blogs done against me and six radio shows done against me because I'd been preaching on revival. I had somebody start an imaginary Facebook page and they friended all the people in our church just to attack me, send everybody messages and say things against me. It was a really interesting season. And uh, so in the midst of the season, um, I was riding my bike one day and I go out and I'm Leaving, going down the road on my on my pedal bike, not my motorcycle. I'm driving down one day, and all of a sudden I see I, there's tears just flowing out of my eyes, and I went, "That's really weird, Lord. What is that?" And he said, "It's me. I'm pulling grief out of your soul." I went, "Uh oh, better get along with God." So I drove back home, and I sat down in my living room, and I said, "Okay, what's going on?" He said to me, "You've been taking hits for now six months, and you've accumulated pain in your soul." I said, "Okay, I believe that. What do I do with this?" He goes, I just want you to sit with me every day in silence. And he said, I'm just going to drain it. And every day I'd sit with the Lord for 10 minutes. And when I would sit there, I mean, I just had gushes of tears every day. I wasn't thinking about it. I was just fixing my eyes on Jesus. But this pain was just like he was sucking out poison from my inner being. And he has this marvelous way in his presence to deal with our issues. And I love that about him. Perfect love drives out fear. 1 John 4. And what I want to do is get in his perfect love and let him begin to drag the stuff out inside that's causing me to be afraid. Fifth, uh, overcoming your fears does involve surrender sooner or later. You know, this gentle response he speaks of ultimately is about submission. It's about bowing our stiff necks. We have to choose to trust him. He's with us. He's for us. We can trust him because of the cross. And so we have to surrender at the end of the day. And six, overcoming your fears always involves action. In faith, we have to act in the opposite direction of our fears. You know, courage isn't the absence of fear. It's really doing what is right in the face of fear. That's what courage is. So we always have to act on 
Uh, in my case, you know, sometimes my fear would cause me to withdraw from Jen. And what I realized was when I withdrew from Jen, sometimes because I was avoiding true intimacy, I would struggle with false intimacy, things like lust. And so in the midst of that, you know, again, the Holy Spirit in this process of healing my soul said to me, you know, you cannot overcome your fear of not being loved unless you'll lean into the hard conversation you're trying to avoid. Every time you lean out of it, you're reinforcing your fear. I need you to lean in and have the hard conversation. And so when I would lean in, you know, sometimes she'd get really defensive or angry or something, and then I would be reluctant to do it. He'd say, no, you can't do that. I need you to lean in. And I would lean into the hard conversation. And I finally got to the place where I was acting on my faith more than acting on my fears when my fears were getting tapped. And when that happened, man, it made a huge difference in overcoming my fears. One last story I want to tell you, and then uh, I'll maybe do a little dialogue around this and I have a couple other activities I'd like us to do. One day I'm in the you know season where I was really taking a beating in, in at church and I drove to the monastery to get away alone with God. It's a place that I go to frequently and it's a place of refuge for me. It's a, it's a great place. I've met with God so many times there. And so I'm driving up onto the campus and as I drive onto the campus I am struck with intense anxiety. It's like somebody turned on that fire hose again that I had at Lee and Payne, which I had not experienced in years and years. And so as soon as I get there, I get my bags, I go into my room, I hit my knees, and I'm like, okay, Lord, what is that? No, I'm not going to live with anxiety, so let's figure this thing out. What is this? And the Lord is silent. He's not saying anything to me, so I figured I'd help him out. He needed a little help. So I'm like, Lord, okay, did I sin? You know, because sometimes the reason why I'm out of alignment and I feel anxiety is because of the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And I've been ignoring him, right? So I'm like, did I sin? He's like, no. I'm like, okay, great. Um, I said, do I have too many balls in the air? Because sometimes the reason I wrestle with anxiety is I have taken on too many tasks. I have not honored my limits. And that will cause me anxiety. So I'm like, is it this just, I'm dishonoring my limits? He's like, no. I'm like, okay, good. I said, am I standing on the wrong platform? Because sometimes I'll feel this anxiety because I'm standing on a platform of performance. And it's called performance anxiety. It's because you're standing on a platform that says the issue of my value is dependent upon whether I can perform well enough. And I'm like, is it the performance platform? Because I've been anxious over that before. He's like, no. I'm like, okay. Did I slip over onto the issue of my values dependent upon whether or not people love me platform, the people-pleasing platform? He's like, no, that's not it. I'm like, do you want to tell me what it is? And he said, I'm like, okay, I'll do whatever I can do. You know, so I prayed, I fasted, I'm seeking God, I'm worshiping, I'm confessing every sin I can think of, even Ron's sins, I'm confessing everything, you know, just everything I can think of. I'm like, wow, what is going on? And I can't shut it down. That took a while, Steve says. That's rude. Ooh. That's rough. So anyways, I'm there, you know. The entire time, this fire hose of anxiety is running in my spirit. Literally, I go to bed the first night, and I wake up in the middle of the night, and the anxiety is still ripping. And, you know, I go back to bed, and wake up in the morning, ripping anxiety. Can't shut this thing down. I get up the next morning. I mean, I had some stuff that I was planning on doing, and I'm like, I threw it all out the window. I'm like, all I'm doing is praying fast and waiting on God. You've got to fix this. All day the next day, I'm doing all the stuff I know how to do. I'm being silent, doing everything I can practice. I can't figure out what it is, and I can't break it. 
Finally, the third day comes, and my last day, and I'm about ready to go home. I said to the Lord, I can't go home unless you give me a plan to get out of this. You've got to help me. Again, desperation is off the platform breakthrough because you're finally humble enough to listen. And I sat there and I said to the Lord, will you please, please give me the keys to get out of this? He said, go into the auditorium. There's a chapel there. So I walked into the chapel, and I'm sitting there. There's one other monk in there, you know, just the monk. He's, you know, I got my hood on, you know. He's got his hood on. I feel like I fit right in, you know, sitting there. I sense the Holy Spirit, you know, just asking me to be still. So I'm still for 45 minutes. I am not thinking anything but fixing my attention on Jesus. I'm just waiting now. I'm not moving until he tells me. And I'm sitting there waiting. And finally, after 45 minutes, he says to me, Psalm 23. I mean, you know Psalm 23. I know Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. That's as far as I can get. That phrase caught inside of me. The Holy Spirit blew fresh breath across the phrase. He restores my soul. I couldn't get past it. He restores my soul. And as I sat there with this thing, I just lingered with that word, that phrase, he restores my soul for another 40 minutes or something like that. And as I sat there for that long, finally the Holy Spirit spoke to me and that's what he said to me. He goes, my presence comes in many forms. There's my healing presence, my loving presence, my empowering presence, my filling presence. What you need to tap into is my restorative presence. He said, you've been on the front lines of the battlefield, you've taken many hits and your soul has been tattered. You need to access my restorative presence in order to mend the nets inside your soul. And then the anxiety will drain. He said to me, the only way to access my restorative presence is in silence, in solitude. If you think about the scene, he's leading you beside still waters, literally waters at rest. It's a scene of stillness. And so every day I would spend like 10 minutes alone with God in the morning, just in stillness. I'd spend 10 minutes at lunchtime in stillness. I might spend another 10 minutes at dinner or before bed in stillness. Some days I could get 20 or 30 minutes in in different places. And every day, the anxiety drained a little bit. It took three months, and at the end of three months, it was completely gone. To this day in my life, I'll still once in a while have a, a spike of fear or anxiety. Every time I do, I know my soul is out of alignment with God. And I get along with the Lord. Literally, that phrase, he restores my soul, literally is he returns my soul. And every day, my soul gets out of alignment. I get along with the Lord, and I say, you need to show me what that is. Too often, you know, we go to the wrong source, looking for help for our souls. God is the master of your soul. He knows how to help you. He's incredibly smart. He knows how to bring you into alignment. 